What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. And so this is one conversation that's really cool I've been trying to have with Muriel for like a year. So as we're talking about Native American athletic trainers, we get to talk about their upbringing, their cultural, how that has affected their current perspective of athletic training and medicine and how they continue to treat Native Americans. Muriel Sosi, talking about both uh, Native Americans and the, the population. Also join in, we have Alyssa Frederick. Sure. Good morning from Hopi Land. And then Wyatt White Goat from the Navajo tribe. Good morning, everybody. This is Wyatt. Jasmine Velasquez from Muskogee. And Shema Dove. And then Marisha from the Navajo tribe. Yeah, this is Marisha. All right. And then I didn't switch over to Muriel. Muriel is the, the one that put this all together for us so that we get to share and learn about Native American athletic trainers. So Muriel, if you will, say good morning. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. I'm excited. Um, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Native American. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Native American. And I did have the conversation with Muriel beforehand, making sure that it was the correct terminology. So the Native American Native American is the correct word. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Right before we jumped on, I said uh, how excited I am to learn uh, today. It's very rare that we can actually get a chance to sit down and have conversations. And we're seeing the importance of diversity and inclusion. But when we talk about that, what does that really mean? For me, it's about learning other people's perspectives, other people's cultures, and how they differ, but also complement my worldview. And then how can we collaborate as healthcare professionals uh, going forward? So I'm really excited. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into it right now. Uh, Muriel, tell us a little bit about yourself. and uh... Awesome. Thank you, John. Um, well, I was born and raised here on the Navajo Nation, um, you know, byproduct of all of our ancestors. Uh, my family is a big, important uh, aspect of my, you know, upbringing and then also the influence to athletic training. Um, I, th I think I learned pretty young, probably about the age of five or six, that I wanted to go into athletic training. Um, my aunt used to take me to rodeos, and the only thing I used to, you know, focus on was, even though they were EMTs running out to the athlete that was injured, I just thought that was the coolest thing. Like, what is that? You know, these people are helping these uh, cowboys, and like, it, to me, it was just like the most amazing job in the world. Number one, um, they're helping people. And then number two, like they literally had the best seat in the house. And to this day, I can't say that there's a day that I've gone without watching sports. Like I sat there personally, you know, reflected and I was like, I don't think I've ever gone a day without watching any type of sports. So it's really a big influence for me. Um, and like I said, my family, we deal with a lot of um, chronic health conditions here on the Navajo Nation, diabetes, you know, cancers, um, you name it, hypertension. Um, so I have a lineage of that. Um, diets, um, you know, all suffered from all of those. So early on, I was in and out of the hospital with them, you know, traveling with them just because, you know, my parents were busy working and they were my caretakers. So I, I seen a lot of the care that they received and from just observing and watching, you know, I always put that in the back of my head of like, if I ever you know, do this, I'm never going to treat anybody the way that my grandparents might have been and that they do have feelings and, you know, you know, you need to approach them in a different way. So that's kind of where I come from. Um, I graduated back in 2003. Um, I was not a traditional college student. 
I had my two sons early. Um, they're now nine and 15. So, you know, um, I decided to go back to school in 2009 uh, to pursue my associates. I was in little tiny jobs, temp jobs here and there. And I was like, I can't continue to be like this. Um, I knew I had greater things in life set for me. So I had to jump on it. Um, started my program at a branch campus at the UNM in Gallup, um, which is about 30 minutes, 45, got that done. And then decided to make the big move to the main campus in Albuquerque, which is about um, about a three hour commute. Um, so that's what I decided to do. And at the time I was majoring in business. I just seen that as my way out and that was the best like profession for me at the time. So then um, looking at the college programs and everything, I had seen athletic training and I was like, oh my God, there it is. So I jumped on it, applied to the program. Um, I was, I pretty much had planned it to where I had taken all of the basics, uh, the requirements before, but when I went to go apply, they were like, no, you have to go through the full program, the full four years. And I was like, oh, you know, that's another four more years than I planned to be here. But I knew in my heart that's where I needed to go. That's what I wanted to do. And that was what was going to make me happy. So I finally finished um, two years ago, 2018 in May. And then as soon as I was done, um, I came here to our local hospital, um, Toyota Medical Center, applied for a job with their employee wellness program. And I've been here ever since. So it's been, it's been one heck of a journey for me, but um, I'm proud of where I come from. Alyssa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure thing. Um, same as Mira, I was born and raised here on the Hopi Reservation. I don't think I really discovered athletic training until uh, my junior year in high school. Uh, for, for however way things happen, we happened to have a athletic trainer my junior or senior year. And then after high school, I was a little undecided about what I wanted to do. So kind of a last minute school tour, I uh, went to Fort Lewis College. It was a uh, conference and there was a student there that had athletic training and she presented and I told my mom she was a chaperone on that trip and I was like hey I like that I want to go I want to do that so um, I turned down a scholarship to NAU and applied to Fort Lewis and um, applied for the athletic training program and I graduated from Fort Lewis College uh, in 2007 and I ended up applying for grad school so um, I ended up going to A.T. Steele University in Mesa, Arizona, um, and um, that's kind of when the the big um, shutdown with, uh, in 2009, there was a lot of jobs, especially in Arizona, so I happened to get a call from my old head athletic trainer um, about a job opening in Durango, so I drove from Phoenix to Durango, which is about eight hours, went there, um, applied, interviewed, um, drove back to Phoenix, and then two days later, I got the call, said that I was hired. So Naringo High School as a head athletic trainer as a part of uh, Mercy Regional Medical Center. Um, and Durango is one of the largest um, schools in southwestern uh, Colorado. So I had around like 23 sports and three different venue sites that I had to cover um, all by myself. <laughs> so I did that for six years. Um, my husband and I kind of decided that we wanted to, one, own a house, two, start a family. So uh, we decided to make the move back to my reservation because uh, my husband's from a different tribe. And um, we took a year off to travel. And then after that, uh, I actually started reaching out to my local high school about um, setting up a, a athletic training program. Um, 
And basically my education has been a really uh, smooth sailing um, until I came home and trying to advocate for athletic training. That's probably where I hit the most roadblocks. Um, we already had the facilities um, from the previous athletic trainer, but um, just, I think I ended up going through, I'm on my fourth different superintendent, probably my fourth different high school principal. Um, and I am on my fourth year of being a part-time athletic trainer at Hopi Junior Senior High School. Um, but however, during uh, the years, I have slowly built up the program. So last year I started a sports medicine club and we started um, getting students to apply for uh, scholarships and things like that through the Arizona State Athletic Trainers Association. And um, that's something that I'm um, trying to keep going. And um, we're sl I'm slowly making more and more um, headway into you know, fighting for a full-time position. And then I ended up meeting Muriel at one of our state conferences and um, we ended up kind of just keeping in touch and Next thing you know, we, we kind of started talking about this, so. Hi guys, my name is Jasmine. I'm from the Muskogee Creek Nation. Um, I'm a descendant of the Trail of Tears. Uh, ultimately, my family ended up in Los Angeles because of a relocation program. Um, I was introduced to athletic training, just like Alyssa in high school. Um, we had a sports medicine program. I went to Culver City High School and I was a student trainer. Um, ultimately, I went to El Camino. I got my associate's degree in kinesiology, and then I went on to Azusa Pacific University, and I graduated with my bachelor's in athletic training in 2016. Um, from there, I went on to become the head athletic trainer of Lawndale High School and work for Team to Win, which is a nonprofit uh, organization that brings athletic trainers into typically underserved um, and like systematically oppressed communities. Um, ultimately, my journey as like an athletic trainer uh, has been very interesting. I've only ever been at Lawndale High School, which for me is kind of amazing. Um, we started a sports medicine program there for our biological careers academy. So we have an actual like education program and it reaches a lot of students. We have over 250 students currently enrolled in our program um, and we work with a very diverse population. 98% uh, of my demographic is minority. Um, so, you know, it's always cool when you're the indigenous woman who's working with a bunch of like minority students. Uh, so there we go. That's sort of my like brief bio all wrapped up. Awesome. Wyatt. Yeah. So for me, I wasn't introduced to athletic training until my college career and undergrad, but I always had a passion for sports and everything. And I thought I was going to go into physical therapy. So but that took a quick turn real, real quick. So in undergrad, I did a work study with athletic training as a sports medicine assistant. And that's when I was introduced as an athletic trainer um, to students into the profession. And that's when I fell in love with it. So I had applied to PT schools, got foundation. There's more hands-on. It's quicker. It's more intense. And so I was like, I, I'm more passionate about that. So I got into St. Louis University and I graduated with my master's back in 2016. So that's where I went and I'm very thankful that I had that opportunity. So there, I knew there was something more that I wanted to do with athletic training because I have this passion of like community health and everything and I wanted to branch onto that. Uh, so I went on to get my master's in public health at George Washington University. Like many of our, Alyssa said and Muriel said, athletic training on the reservation is not really 
exposed and really there. So there's, I think that's the reason why I wanted to get the experience off the reservation, which is very unfortunate coming from a person that's native because you want to help your people. But then again, you want to also get that experience as well because, you know, that's the only way to learn. So that was my reasoning of also wanting to go somewhere else so I can practice my athletic training. Um, so in D.C., I was practicing athletic training while I was getting my master's in public health. And then ultimately, um, the pandemic hit. And so schools shut down. So now I have actually have a fortunate opportunity to come back to the reservation. So I'm currently on the reservation right now. And I'm currently in this position switch and everything. Still have my position in D.C., but there's a position that opened up on the reservation and this opportunity to work with my people as a wellness program specialist and just integrate those uh, techniques and skills that I learned as an athletic trainer, but also integrating it with my public health knowledge. So that's where I'm at right now. And thank you guys for letting us be on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a lot of great information. My name is Marisha Little, like I said before. Um, for those who are Navajo, I am of the Black Street Forest People Clan. I was born for the Caucasians, and my maternal grandfather is the Salt Clan, and um, my paternal grandfather was also Caucasian. Um, for me, I think I'm the newest athletic trainer of the bunch. I was a military wife. I started my athletic training degree in 2012. However, with permanent changes of station, three universities later, I finally graduated with my bachelor's degree, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in 2019. I think that it seems much longer than that though, because I got really heavily involved in the athletic training profession as a student. I served on the PR and marketing committee um, of the Athletic Trainers Association of Florida for three years, so two years as a student. And I also served at the national level and uh, the NATA Student Leadership Committee for one year. And so I stayed pretty involved um, in the profession. However, similar to what everyone's saying about how they wanted to come back and um, bring something home to our tribes and to our people and make, in a, make a difference. Um, a lot of the work that I do now, so we're currently stationed in Florida. A lot of the work that I do now with uh, the, the Native American tribes, or at least Navajo tribe, um, is through grant projects. Um, I received, along with a, a colleague of my project when I was a student, and it was titled um, Bridging the Cultural Gap Among High School Students in the Athletic Training Profession. Um, there were several goals for that project, some personal and some professional. So my personal goal, of course, it's a, always like everybody here, I'm sure, is a lifetime goal to bring, you know, contribute to the lives of our people in some way. And I, we are all passionate about athletic training and we're all passionate about our culture and our tribe. And so providing the opportunity for, um, for you know, our young people in our tribes to experience something new or experience a new career path was really something that was important to me. And I think that going back and encouraging and being a motivator for the students to go and get an education was also something that was a personal goal for me. We received a category one grant from the NATA Ethnic Diversity Advisory Committee. And with this, with this grant, the purpose was to try to increase the amount of, or the number of ethnically diverse athletic trainers in the profession. And I've done a ton of research recently because I'm writing my thesis, but as of 2017, there's only 221 Native American athletic trainers who are NATA members out of close to 48,000. So we don't really even make up 1% of the population of um, Native American 
um, athletic trainers. And so this is another reason why it was important for us to go back and promote athletic training on the reservation to increase the number of Native American athletic trainers um, or the students that are going through our programs. Um, another professional goal of the grant was that, um, you know, where, where I currently work, um, I guess I should probably say that. I currently work at the University of West Florida <laughs> as an athletic trainer. I'm the graduate assistant to both the bachelor's and the master's programs there at uh, the University of West Florida. And I also work PRN at Andrews Institute in the sports medicine outreach department. Um, but one of the important things at the university that I work at is diversity and cultural competence. And so through these grant projects, we were able to provide three other additional athletic training students the opportunity to um, experience a high impact practice learning environment with cultural competency. So they got real life experience being immersed in another culture um, completely. And so um, I think that was, you know, that's kind of how my, how I'm um, associated with the working with um, Native American tribes is through our, our grant work. We have three tribes that are, um, represented here today, um, the Navajo, Hopi, and Muscogee. So let's talk a little bit about, let's, let's talk, um, oh, I have this all written down. Alyssa, Hopi, um, can you share, us a, share with us a little bit about your tribe? Uh, sure. Um, so Hopi, we've been here a pretty long time. <laughs> so we're, really, we're native to the American Southwest. You know, we have um, all our ruins um, scattered throughout the Southwest. Um, I think what makes Hopi unique is that we um, still practice a lot of our cultural teachings and we have a lot of our ceremonies that we still practice as well. So I think growing up here on Hopi and then um, coming back as a healthcare professional and working on Hopi is that we do understand that, um, you know, what during our ceremonial calendar that um, we do see a lot of athletes, coaches, and staff that uh, miss practices and games um, because we have um, our traditional duties to take care of. Um, so that's one thing I think that we're very proud of, um, that we, we still um, honor our traditions and do a variety of things. Um, I think what we're tr really well known for is our running. Um, so I was part of the cross-country program as well. And then, um, of course, you know, our, our boys program is pretty uh, famous as well for, you know, the most state championships consecutively. My brother was part of that program as well. Um, but we also have a high um, student population of Navajo students as well from our neighbor, neighboring communities. And what makes that special is that those students, like from Pinon, uh, we had students from like Sabadelka, Idelcon, uh, a lot of those students were taking bus rides, you know, over an hour on dirt roads. Uh, we even take some of our Hopi students from one of our farther villages, which is at Munkapi, and that's about a good hour, hour and a half bus ride over, you know, a paved road. But um, we have a lot of students that take um, long bus rides just to get to the school. And in terms of competition, that's kind of how I know, um, you know, of course, we played Winter Rock and um, Marisha is from Sanders. And so we know all these um, local towns where we travel um, you know, more than an hour and a half to, to just to play. Um, and in our region, which we call the 2A North, we play um, some of the teams in um, the mountain regions, but that's a three hour drive um, just to compete. So, you know, we're having kids 
um, you know, drive three hours, we play three hours back, and we expect them to be back at school first thing at 8.30. Um, and again, some of these students live more than an hour away from the, from the high school. And this goes for our junior high students as well because we integrate our junior high and high school together just because we're such a small community. Um, but for me, that's just something, and I'm pretty sure Muriel and Wyatt and um, uh, Marisha can relate to, is that for us, that's just normal. You know, going over dirt roads, long road, road trips, um, something completely different from my time in Durango where uh, of course, we were rural, south, um, southwestern Colorado. However, they got to spend uh, nights in a hotel room, so that way they could compete uh, from teams that were about four hours away. So I think, if anything, I'm really used to traveling for athletics. And I think here on the reservation, that's just something that we're very used to is long bus rides, uh, dirt roads. And um, like I said, for Hopi, we still have to honor our um, ceremonial and traditional duties as well. Jasmine, as a, a representative here today for Muskogee, what can you tell us about your tribe, your culture? So the Muskogee Creek Nation gets typically described as like a Muskogee Nation. Um, it's usually a collective of tribes that have come together. Um, our tribe is originally from southeastern United States, so Alabama, Georgia, um, South Carolina, um, and migrated to Oklahoma during the Trail of Tears. Um, our tribe originally started out with about 15,000 people. And during the Trail of Tears, we lost over 5,000 of our descendants. So ultimately when it comes to our tribe, we're pretty spread out. A lot of them got relocated based on like government relocation programs, like I would mentioned earlier. Uh, typically they just wanted to spread out Native Americans even further. So ultimately we ended up in um, Los Angeles. When it comes to my tribe and traditions, typically, incorporating this into like the concept of like athletic training and even like our medicine we are we practice like a holistic sense of being and so incorporating that into our regular practice is something that's really important to me as an athletic trainer uh cultural wise uh we have a lot of like it's really hard when you're a descendant of the trail of tears because our culture gets scattered um, so there's not a huge collective of like Muskogee people who live in the confines of like my neighborhood. Um, so that is always very, very difficult. And it's one thing that people don't really seem to understand is that there are a lot of tribes when it comes to being Native American and, you know, each of them come with their own cultures and practices. And so we need to learn individually about other tribes. And then I'm just going to open this up. We have three others that are uh, representing the Navajo Nation. So Wyatt, Muriel, Marisha, um, I'll let you kind of open the floor and, and discuss your views uh, of your, your cultural background. We're located in the Southwest region. Um, the Hopi Reservation actually is centered to the Navajo Nation. Um, we are the largest landmass reservation. So um, it's basically the size of West Virginia. Um, as far as the Navajo Nation and Navajo people, also referred to as the Diné people, uh, meaning the people. Uh, we are a group of people that are resilient, just like many tribes um, across the nation. We basically honor and value kinship, which is basically family and heritage and cultural traditions. That's something that we prioritize as community members, and that's something that always is at the forefront of everything that we do, whether that be clinically, practicing, or just day-to-day -day activities. Um, as far as sports, we really are 
known for basketball on the reservation, just like many reservations, basketball is a big key. We really love sports and everything. I think that's the reason why most of us also got into athletic training is because of the athletics, the athletics on the reservation and running, just like Alyssa said to that. Um, as far as, you know, geographically, unfortunately, you know, the reservation is an area that, like um, Jasmine said, was relocation for many Native Americans. And unfortunately, like many Native Americans for the Navajo Nation, 40% have no running water. Not many people have electricity. Um, for, not many people have internet. For instance, I don't have internet at my house. So that's why I'm sitting in a parking lot at a library trying to do this. But then also like we have, as far as like grocery stores and everything like that, we have 13 grocery stores on the reservation. So it gives you a sense of idea for like a state or for a reservation that's the size of West Virginia and um, scaling it back to how, how si the size and the access to certain things. Um, so that's a little bit about the reservation, but I just want to say that, you know, our people are very valued around family and everything. And we really want to make sure that we set forth the next generation of everything as far as education and sports. So one thing that we Navajos um, sort of live by um, is a concept called hojan. Um, it's, it's like a mindset. It's a way of living. Um, you know, we bring all good things to us and we spread all good things to everything around us. Um, so it's, it's not really a teachable sort of thing. Like I said, it's a way of life. Um, it's a balance. So it's a balance between anything that you do, your thinking, what you do, um, the way you present yourself. Like I said, it's really just the way of life and that's what we uh, practice and that's what we try to live by. Um, and once our hajan becomes out of balance, uh, that's when we start seeing, you know, things happening. Um, for instance, for our athletes, we see injuries, um, we see mental illnesses, we see, you know, diseases and stuff like that. So that's something that the Navajos practice. Um, and there's different ways that they do it, you know, get up early, run to the east, um, pray, use our tadadin, which is a corn pollen. Um, in our prayers, um, practice all of our ceremonies. We have, you know, several different ceremonies, um, even as young children, um, well, even before that, as, uh, as mothers, as fathers, there's ceremonies that are practiced before our children are born. Um, and then when our children are born um, and as they grow up, they go through uh, ceremonies for puberty. So, you know, the females, they have the kinata ceremony and then the males also have a puberty ceremony as well. Um, and these are just teachings that we uh, implement to say, you know, we are resilient. This is where we gather our strength, so on and so forth. So it's, it's, really, it's really diverse. Um, it's really um, sometimes it gets not exhausting, but there's so much information to absorb. Um, and a lot of it is taught orally through our language. Um, and unfortunately, half of more than half of our people don't speak our language um, due to assimilation um, in our history. You know, we had just like Jasmine talked about the Trail of Tears, we had the long walk. Um, our people were forced off of our lands and, you know, pushed here and there and told not to speak our Diné language and forced to speak English and forced into schools and forced education upon themselves. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I know I am a product of that. Um, 
again, I've discussed with the group that I wasn't raised traditionally. Um, it wasn't until I was married that I started to practice traditional teachings. I was raised more in a Christian home. And um, so it's, like I said, it's hard to learn our teachings, especially if you don't know the language. Um, I myself don't really know the language. I feel like I can read it and write it better than I can even understand or speak it. Um, because that was what was taught to me in school was how to read and write. Um, but as far as speaking, you know, there's different type of dialects out there among our people, among our people, and also um, certain areas speak sort of a different language. They have different words for different things, so there's different ways of saying things. Um, so it's it's challenging, you know, trying to live in two different worlds sometimes, um, especially when you're trying to help elders. You know, it's either like Selena said, you're either not Native American enough or you're too Native American. So um, it's it's finding that balance, finding that hajan, um, and just living by that and teaching it to our younger generations. I think uh, Wyatt and Muriel did a great job explaining a lot of the uh, aspects of our culture and where we come from. Um, just to kind of expand on what Wyatt said about the infrastructure on our in our uh, and I think it's our on our in our reservations and um, I think it could be uh, spread across to other reservations as well. But there is a lack of infrastructure, not only lack of running water and electricity, we have a lack of cell phone towers and a lack of phone lines. Um, people don't have, you know, ga like gas in their homes, so they don't use gas to cook. They will cook outside over an open fire. Um, so there's all of these different aspects that come into living um, on the reservation. And um, I think, you know, what Wyatt was saying is that a lot of people, you know, they understand that there's social determinants that are affecting health on the reservation. But I don't think that a lot of people in the country realize that, you know, people are living without these niceties in 2020 in the United States, people have no electricity. You know, I think that's something that we really wanted to highlight, but we also aren't coming from a place that is to incite pity from anybody. We're trying to bring awareness to the issues that are happening on our reservations because we want to collaborate with people to fix them. And so that was that's one of the things that we felt that was really important for um, us to say. In addition to what Muriel said about Hojan, um, I think that this might, uh, I guess um, we can compare it to what Jasmine said as well. Her tribe looks at health and life in a circular pattern or a, um, a holistic type uh, manner. And so I think that might be one of the similarities between the tribes, even though we're all different, a similarity between the tribes might be that we, you know, all see health and life as in this holistic manner. Um, and a lot of the time it's depicted, if you look in research studies, it's depicted as a circular pattern, which Wyatt and, and, and Muriel, I did not know how to name, but they told me, or they enlightened me a couple of our sessions back that it's actually called the indigenous framework. So if you, anybody wants to look that up for more information, that's there. Um, the one thing that I think that um, I could add on to the conversation about the Navajo culture is that we're a matrilineal society. So um, everything is passed down through the mother's side of the family. Um, and I think through this, we have a really distinct clan system that um, helps us identify who we are. And I think that's why it's important for us to let other people know um, what our clans are, because it's, it's giving them an idea of who we are and where we come from. Um, and through this clan system, it creates an environment where your extended family becomes your immediate family. So now you're looking at people in, you know, Western society, um, 
your your aunts are now your mothers and your cousins are now your brothers and sisters. And so it really forms this familial or bond and it creates um, a real um, tight community support group, I think. But I think those are the only things that I really had to add to the conversation. They did an amazing job <laughs> explaining everything. <laughs> you know, like you said, it's not the, we're talking about diversity and inclusion and it's not to bring about um, pity or, or anything like that. It's, it's a way to drive the need for highlighting uh, ways that we need to understand to, to better collaborate everybody, collaborate with everybody uh, as healthcare professionals. So it's not just let's highlight the, the needs to, to draw pity on somebody. It's, it's how can we collaborate and how can we understand better? Um, so I, I think that was great that you said that. And I really appreciate that. Um, I want to talk about uh, ways that you as healthcare providers, as athletic trainers, have incorporated your traditional ceremonies, your traditional beliefs uh, into or along with Western medicine and how that drives the care that you provide as a healthcare provider. Um, you know, we talked family resilience um, and, and then we start touching on some of the cultural beliefs and ceremonies. Um, how did those kind of, how are those all incorporated into your practice as an athletic trainer. Uh, and I'm gonna start with Jasmine. Incorporating like my cultural aspects into athletic training um, is really interesting. So working at Lawndale High School, um, unlike you know everybody else on this panel, they work with predominantly like Native American students and athletes. Um, I work with students who are Polynesian. So I work with a different type of demographic and being um, indigenous being a Native American woman, you know, and meeting these Polynesian mothers, they have a very traditional custom as well. Their practice in medicine is very, is kind of similar. They look at using traditional medicine, herbs and muds and leaves, and, you know, they go to a traditional doctor called the Nohila, and, you know, similarly to working with, like, Native Americans, we have to understand cultural differences. And we have to be able to embrace them and understand and be willing to learn from them. So for me, I use this holistic approach. So we're treating not just the physicality of an injury, but we're looking at the mental aspect. I'm in communication with um, my, I have a lot of Tongans, my Tongan mothers and their athletes and their Tongan doctors, Ohilas, and we're looking at how are we going to incorporate this idea of culture and tradition into our practice. And creating that understanding between the two bridges the gap a little bit. Yes, there is a point in time where like we can go in and we're going to say, hey, we need to go see a traditional doctor. We need X, Y, and Z done. But building that foundation first where you're like, hey, I understand your cultural practices. How do we incorporate that? How do we communicate that effectively? And when do we know when that's not working and we need to move on to another aspect? For me, within the concept of my practice, I try to incorporate you know, how are we going to mentally prepare for what we're about to do? How are we going to tell your mind that your body is going to benefit from what it is that we're about to do? So whether that's bringing in almost like a refocusing, a recentering, um, whether that's like just talking it out, um, as well as bringing in like a lot of different aspects of like essential oils and things like that in like our practice and more traditional approach. Um, I think even prior to any of that, one thing that I don't even think like my faculty or staff are aware of, but I go in to my classroom and, you know, the training room and 
I legitimately like pray for my students and ask the ancestors to guide me a little bit. How am I going to use my customs? How am I going to use everything that I carry into this practice? And how am I going to do the best I can to, to heal, essentially? Wyatt, what about you? As um, a Navajo, I think like we share similar things of many tribes, just like Jasmine was alluding to, is that, you know, we need to be, uh, as Native, like I need to be mindful when working with um, Navajos. I have been predominantly, again, working with people that are not natives in DC and St. Louis. However, like when I do practice, I always keep in mind that, you know, I need to be mindful of how I was taught as well, keeping my separation, not really separation, but integration of my culture and Western medicine as well. And so what I always think about myself is making sure that I always practice with this holistic view that the mind-body dualism, making sure that everything is connected, everything is spiritually there, not only and not only mentally and physically, making sure that balance is basically united with the individual so that when they do go back to their realm of practice or their everyday activities, making sure that, you know, they are spiritually aware of like what their surrounding is, making sure they're confident because it goes back to that Hojong balance and making sure that we are balanced as individuals and making sure that we are balanced as individuals here on this earth and with mother nature. And so that's something that I always keep in mind when practicing is making sure that the spiritual aspect is always there. But another thing I always personally mean as well as being mindful, especially now being back on the reservation is that many people will seek out a medicine man for their own spiritual beings or their spiritual awareness. And so that's something that I need to be good be integrating into my practice now being back in the reservation is that you know sometimes as an athletic trainer or as a wellness program specialist now is that you know western medicine may not always work for the individual and so therefore like some people always have this curiosity of like you know well let's try something else and so therefore opening out those barriers and opening up those pathways of like west or navajo medicine or just native medicine in general that, you know, those are opportunities and things that people really instilled in me. And that's something that I need to give back to them as well. Alyssa? So Hopi, we have um, medicine men and women as well. And that's something that um, moving back out here and just growing up out here too, is that um, it's very common for families to seek out, um, you know, not only spiritual, but some physical um, help from our, what we, our medicine men, which we call tuhikyas. Um However, you know, since my school also has Navajo students, I have to be um, cognizant of, you know, what their traditions tell me. And so a lot of it is um, a lot of listening. Um, I, I think all of us know, especially us being Native students as well, is that we tend to be very quiet, very shy at first. I don't know why, <laughs> but maybe it's just taught that, um, if anything, we're always taught to listen first. Listen, look, and then you make an action. So... Um, that's something that I always have to remind myself for my students is that I have to listen, gain their confidence. And then, of course, um, especially in terms of um, the traditional medicine, being um, mindful and respectful of it as well, uh, just because that's, some, that's part of my life as well. So uh, similar to Navajo, hope you have the same, same outlook on traditional medicine. Muriel, how about, what can you add? Um, I think everybody gave really good explanations. Um, like Wyatt said, um, you know, making sure everything is in balance uh, with 
ourselves and also with Mother Nature. Um, I was just in a conversation um, a few days ago with my husband about like um, why um, sometimes here when there is an injury um, and if it involves the head, um, there will be somebody that goes onto the play field or wherever the injury occurred and pour down some water. And it was only because I had asked the question because I was thinking about this and I was like, I know I've seen that, but why? I've never been given the reason why. Um, and it's to my understanding that, you know, there's a shift in energies. So um, as Navajos, even though we do play contact sports, football, um, you know, the, you're not supposed to go in with intentions of trying to hurt someone else. So when injuries like that do occur, and especially to the head, um, or like if the head meets the ground, um, there's an energy change, there's an energy shift between the two, you know, the, the physical body and Mother Earth. Um, and Mother Earth will get hot, and then the physical body will get hot. So as we know, you know, the inflammation process, we do feel that heat. Um, and so once the water is poured, we're cooling Mother Earth back down and we're trying to say, you know, we're sorry, um, you know, give that energy back, cool it down. And then as for the athlete as well, we will pour water on them, the same water that we used um, and use that to cool the, you know, the injury point um, and then also to begin that healing process. Um, and then also kind of to wash away, you know, any bad energy that might be there. And I just thought that was really interesting. I had never really thought about it until we had that conversation. And I was like, wow, there's a hot spot. And yet we've had, we know it as, you know, an inflammation process. Um, so, but yet we've already been practicing that for, you know, probably years. Um, so there's a lot of things that do occur um, as far as traditional teachings. Teams will go together um, before the season starts and have ceremonies and prayers done, have sweats done together. Um, just all in teaching, you know, this is a sisterhood, a brotherhood. Um, we all look out for one another. Um, we pray for one another. Um, we, we go into battle, you know, we go into a game together and we're all going to watch over one another. It, you don't ever think that we go into it um, as an individual. We go into it as, again, as a family framework, as a kinship. Um, and then, you know, just overall practicing that hajan. Um, I know a lot of athletes do carry their tetadine with them. They put it in their bags. Um, sometimes they'll, you know, take their herbs before they play. They have their own little routines and just sort of being respectful of that and letting them do what they need to do so that, you know, they're, they're right in their mind and then also they're right spiritually before they go out and play. So that's, that's all I have to add. Awesome. Mar Marisha. I think everybody, you know, is giving a, re a really good explanation of, you know, the way that we're going to incorporate um, our traditional teachings into our own practice as athletic trainers. Um, but I think one thing that I can add on, at least if it's just a um, example, is that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, the whole holistic mindset and hojong is going to also contribute to some of our cultural mannerisms. And so if you're going to be working, at least in the Navajo culture, if you're going to be working with a more traditional Navajo patient, or especially someone who's elderly, the way you communicate with them might be slightly different. Um, so you would often find yourself speaking in third person. And so you wouldn't want to say, um, if you have this injury and if you don't do this, then this will happen to you. 
You know, instead you might say, well, somebody has this injury, um, this could happen to them. And it all goes back to that whole holistic and hojom mindset is that you don't want to put that negative energy out there. Um, my family, my grandma used to teach us that if you put that negative energy into the world, it's going to be more likely for it to come true, kind of like you're speaking it into existence. And so um, a small example for me in my own life is once I was playing with my grandfather's wheelchair and he had told me or uh, she had told me to um, get up out of the wheelchair and move away from it. And she said that I needed to stay healthy and I needed to stay strong so I can walk. And so I need to walk. And if I am sitting in the wheelchair and playing with it, then that's going to it's like me asking for that to happen to me. And so it's all about staying positive in your mindset and your health and in your healing. And so when you're working with a patient, especially for me, I try to be very cognizant about what I'm saying to them. I'm not trying to put, you know, negative, negative um, energy on them while they're trying to heal from an injury or something like that. Um, and then also something that was a little bit hard for me to understand in the beginning between the differences between um, Western medicine and cultural medicine is in our culture, um, you know, I, we kind of talked about the matrilineal clan system and how we were really tight knit with our families and how um, um, family is just really important to us. Um, in Western medicine, or at least when I was going through college, people are, I was taught that the only way to refer to a patient is Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith. And when you're referring to a patient, you should never use things like grandma or grandpa. And because it could potentially be offensive to them because I guess essentially you might be calling them old. But in our culture, we call, if we call somebody Shemasana or my grandma, it's a sign of respect. You know, we, re we very much value our elderly, like high esteem for, the, for our elders. And so if we say Shemasana or my grandmother, it's a sign of respect to them. And it's a way to um, form a familial bond and let them know that they're important to you. And so that was one of the things that I had troubles or struggled with in the beginning is I wanted to tell, I wanted to call somebody grandma, but I wasn't sure if it was appropriate or not, because in my culture it was, you know? And so um, I think that this is true. Like if you say, um, you'll, you'll hear it a lot with Navajo medical professionals working with um, Navajo patients. You'll hear that using a family titles or someone older might call someone younger. Shiyaja means my little one. And so it's, you know, you'll hear that a lot in our culture and especially with medical professionals who are working with our native um, patients. It's a lot of great information. I want to talk a little bit about our current state of, of the world right now and, and what we're dealing with with COVID. Uh, Wyatt, you touched on it. You say uh, you have a background with public health. Um, how has COVID affected your respective nations and how have you as athletic trainers kind of viewed it and how have you been able to assist in the care of your athletes and and your um your tribes and your nations uh, i'm going to start with Alyssa here okay well the pandemic <laughs> so we basically went on spring break um you know had this gorgeous trip planned to california and then we came back from spring break and we actually didn't go back from spring break i think most everyone experience that same thing um so that was a big you know it was a big it was a tragedy if you think about it no sports no school uh, my niece was a senior in high school so she had no senior season for track and and no graduation um 
And similar to the Navajo Nation, um, there's a lot of homes out here that don't have electricity or running water. Um, so in my case, my house, we don't have running water. We have to haul water. Um, so that, but for me, that's just something that is fine because I, I grew up like that. Um, so we just have to be a little bit more mindful about our water usage. However, you know, when we're trying to follow the CDC guidelines about hand washing, for most, even for my family, 20 seconds of running water, that is a long time for, um, for our, our, our cistern to, you know, to keep that full. And it takes us about an hour to fill up our, our tank. And it takes about three tanks to fill up our cistern. So um, in addition to not having electricity, a lot of our villages run on solar. So like um, village uh, Hope Villa, Wolpe, those guys all run on solar. Um, so with the pandemic that has really made us as a tribe, we had to sit down and think, you know, how can we improve our infrastructure? Um, even right now, I'm working on all our um, EAPs and our COVID, um, our COVID care team, our COVID protocols for if and when we can return to sport. Because basically in Arizona, all the reservation schools um, canceled their fall seasons. Um, and the cities like Flagstaff, Phoenix, they're already competing. Um, however, um, on all the reservations, no, no schools are competing right now. And um, luckily, you know, I happen to be out here. So now I have access to all, you know, whatever the NATA and our state associations um, are handing out with a protocol. So I'm working with my local high school, my local healthcare center to set those up. Um, a big thing is we're trying to figure out, you know, how can we get kids, um, like we're even talking about like having kids shower at the school for those that don't have um, access to running water so they can shower at the school and then ride the bus for, hour plus however long they need to get home so just thinking about different aspects of that um, in terms of the pandemic you really look about what resources you have um, similar um, we don't really have any full functioning grocery stores so uh, even for me like when I go buy groceries I usually have to drive to Winslow which is about an hour away or to Flagstaff which is another hour and a half away um, so that's just something that is normal for us however in terms of a pandemic how are we going to keep our kids safe? How are we going to keep things clean? And um, just kind of things that um, I don't think city schools really have to think about, but maybe a lot of rural settings do have to take um, things like that into consideration. Jasmine, what about you? I think in the, the sense of like, you know, the pandemic and COVID, um, yes, my demographic and my students dealt with it in their own ways, but I also saw it as a call to action essentially to educate uh, my students and, you know, everybody that is kind of within my social circles to notify them, bring awareness to the fact of what was going on on, you know, Hopi and Navajo reservations. You know, this was, it's devastating to to watch and see that, you know, essentially your people are, are dying and there's not a lot of resources and this is something that's been neglected. Um, I think one of my students made a very interesting statement and she was like, if this doesn't meet a social media agenda, then it's not going to get attention. And that was one of the things that, you know, it became my responsibility to educate my students because they, you know, they needed to know what was going on with Native Americans and how this was devastating them. Granted, you know, they were dealing with the pandemic and COVID in their own way, but I needed to broaden their spec, their scope, essentially like, hey, you're dealing it with, with it this way, but let's see how other people are dealing with it. It's 2020. 
and Native Americans still don't have electricity and running water. Why is that? So let's look at that. Let's see why this is devastating to our Navajo nations um, and let's do something about it. So ultimately, you know, my students became very big like advocates for Native American culture and they made sure to educate everyone, even in their classrooms. <laughs> now they're demanding their history teachers to teach them like Native American history because they see it as a neglected culture. Um, so for us, you know, it was more so just bringing awareness for what was going on. Marisha. Um, I think uh, after what Jasmine just said is what I was thinking I was going to say is that, you know, a lot of the time Native American communities get overlooked and it's not coming from a place of hostility or, you know, negativity. It's just because we make up such a small portion of the population and because um, not very many people really have you know, exposure to Native American culture. And so I think one of the things that COVID did was really highlight a lot of the issues that are happening on the reservation. Now I'm in Florida, my all my family still lives on the reservation. Um, and there's not much that I could do from from Florida, at least I felt that way in the beginning. And I think one of the things that I really want to you know, advocate or you know, promote is that you can still make a difference even if you are far away. You know, I sewed masks and I sent them to the, um, I sent them to all of the um, nursing homes that were short on supplies. I try to send, I try to send like Clorox wipes and things that they need when they need it. And, um, you know, donating to COVID relief funds, um, even just standing in solidarity. I don't think that I, from March to probably uh, when I started work again at the university, I hadn't gone in any grocery store. I was in isolation because I was just trying to be in solidarity with my tribe, with my family, with my people who are on 57 hour lockdowns, you know? So like on the weekends, they weren't allowed to go out anywhere. And I think they're, they just, Muriel, you can probably correct me, but they just started the 57 hour lockdowns again. And I think one of the things that um, sometimes doesn't get highlighted um, is the fact of, um, multi-generational families are all living in one house and these houses are small you know that a lot of the houses are small maybe a couple room houses and you have you know 10 people living under one roof and so it, I, I, I understand why it would be confusing of how you know you know my husband came home and said somebody asked me to ask you why all these issues are happening on the reservation and I'm like and I had to explain that it's just a overwhelming need of resources there. You know, we need running water, we need infrastructure, we need electricity, we need um, more homes, you know, so it's just, I think it's, um, I think what I'm trying to highlight is that it's not that there hasn't been anything done to try to improve these, improve the conditions there. It's just that there's an overwhelming amount of disparity that um, it's hard to get a handle on. But the funny thing is, is that it's really rare for the people actually living there to even be complaining about it. It's just the way of life. It's just, we just go on, we'll do what we need to do to get by or, you know, we'll thrive. And I think that's just something that really highlights the resiliency of all of our tribes. Muriel? I, I might get a little emotional due to COVID. Um, there's a lot that happened. Um, I work here at the Wellness Center, which is an extension of the hospital here. So we've seen it, you know, roll in. And um, in my position, since the Wellness Center was shut down in March, um, we just kind of 
sat comfortably for, you know, a couple weeks and then just kind of waited for our first case. Um, and then from there it was like, okay, your group, which is basically the wellness center group, um, three departments, um, we jumped right in and we helped our pharmacy department. Um, we ran out medications to patients that needed them. Um, and, you know, that meant contact with um, the public. Um, but, you know, we masked up, got PPEs, did the best we could. Um, and we got those patients their medications that they needed so that they didn't have to go um, inside the facility. Um, and we did that for a majority of the of the year. Um, you know, whether it was windy, whether it was cold, whether it was hot, we were out there um, and we did that. Um, and then a few of us, we got called in um, because of the shortage of the PPEs here. Um, you know, they had a sewing task force and they sewed gowns, um, they sewed the caps for our providers. Um, and so we didn't, we never really had actual shortage. We were always kind of in supply, um, but we had to be really creative um, with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for those people that stepped up to do that for our providers, um, because without them, you know, we would have lot, lost a lot more people. Um, and then also our group um, is now doing assisting our public health nurses with contact tracing. Um, so I was really grateful for the resources that I have, you know, the athletic training platforms on social media, you know, they were pushing out, take this training, take this webinar, contact tracing, we might have to do this. And I was right there with it, jumping into it, taking it. And then once we got into contact tracing, um, you know, a, a few people needed that training and I said, hey, what about this one? What about that one? And we all jumped on it and they're like, how do you know about this? I'm like, oh, it's from my athletic training um, people. So I was really grateful that I was able to share that information. Um, but on the contact tracing side, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff that has happened. Um, there were some days where we were just mentally, emotionally exhausted um, at the end of the day. And you know, trying to keep your spirit up, um, trying to push forward every day, even though it was, you know, hearing these things from these people of, uh, if I have to stay here, how am I going to get water? How am I going to get food? How am I going to get diapers? How am I going to get formula for my children? Um, and as much of a, you know, caring person that I am, I just want to jump up and throw down the money and go rent it to them. But, you know, there's protocol that we have to follow. And, I'm really grateful to all of the nonprofit relief programs that have popped up here on the reservation. Um, they've done a tremendous job in getting um, supplies and necessities to these families um, and to the reservation, you know, as a whole. So I'm really grateful for all of that. Um, and then it, it kind of really went back to, again, our concept of Hojan. There's a, you know, forward planning, um, making sure that you have everything that you need. So I think for Navajos, um, it, it, it wasn't really daunting in the sense, um, kind of rocked us a little bit. Um, but as far as like forward planning, I think we all shifted back to that teaching of like, you know, I need to make sure that I have this. I need to make sure that the animals are fed before the lockdown. Um, you know, just forward planning. So I'm glad that we did have that teaching. We do have that teaching. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it was devastating. Um, and we're seeing, and the reason for the 57 hour lockdowns on the weekends is just to keep our numbers down. Um, it was in the news, you know, we were the highest per capita of cases in the United States. Um, and at some points, you know, our healthcare facilities were taxed. They weren't able to keep patients, they had to ship them out. Um, 
you know, to other facilities in the nation, Albuquerque, Salt Lake, Phoenix. And then once those healthcare facilities started to fill up, you know, they started having to find alternative ways to bring in patients and um, get them out for what they needed, um, which was really scary. Um, but we got it, I think we got it figured out. Um, and just pushing out the education uh, to our people, you know, in our language so that we could educate our elders, because that was that was our biggest, um, you know, threat was that if our elders get sick and they die, like they they take teachings with them that we need. So that was our biggest priority is that we need to make sure that we're protecting them first. Um, and that's why we emphasize, you know, stay home, wash your hands, because if you take it home in our multi-generational homes, we have grandma, grandpa. If they get sick, it might not be, you know, a good turnout for them. So that's a that's a, been a big push with our youth um, as far as advocating to, you know, sort of our middle generation is we have to stay home, we have to protect our elders, we have to protect our language. Um, so again, just emphasizing kinship, making sure that we take care of one another. I think mine goes back to Jasmine and like similar to Marisha's position, I was in DC when everything went down on the reservation. And so unfortunately I wasn't here to help my people. But then I going back to Jasmine's point is like that education part of everything. Many of, I was a graduate assistant at George Washington University and I taught orthopedic taping and bracing and injury assessment for uh, the undergrads as an opportunity to expose them to athletic training or sports medicine in general. And many of the students and considering public health realm as well with many of my peers had asked you know, like, how are your people doing? How is your family doing? And, you know, like I was in good communication via social media or just talking over the phone with my mother and my family that, you know, it's a lot about the education and a lot of the, the awareness. And as an educator, when I was at George Washington University, which was basically highlighting the importance of, you know, <clears throat> the infrastructure and the lifestyle that's on the reservation. However, like, you know, going just more as a way of being aware of like, you know, the background that we come from and making sure like, you know, this is the reason why certain or this is the reason why cases are higher is because, you know, running water is um, not accessible to many people or, you know, just getting nutrition is not accessible to many people. And so like when we try to integrate these teachings across um, on the reservation and outside the reservation, I think it's just highlighting the awareness. And so much of my part was basically sharing it on social media, like ways to donate to the relief funds and ways to advocate for um, the care on the reservation. And so that's much of my contribution to it. Unfortunately, I, like, again, I know like right now I'm in a great position of being back on the reservation. And that's ultimately the reason why I came back to the reservation as well. It's because so my people, like, again, we're built on this kinship and this idea that, you know, we, you are given so much, but also make sure you don't forget where you came from. And so I think like this is a reason why I came back is because I wanted to give back to my people of years of knowledge that I've gained and prospering other future generations are also sharing my teachings and my knowledge with other people. And I think that's the reason why I'm now in that position, in that opportunity to open up those doors and expose myself and learn, reconnect with my culture as well. Um, I think it goes both ways as a native, like, you know, teaching somebody, but also learning something back in return. And I think that's where I'm in a great position right now um, as an athletic trainer, but also as a public health. You know, this has been a really great conversation and, and we've learned a lot here. Um, I do want to end with one last question uh, in order to kind of respect everybody's time. Um, what is one thing that we can do to help advocate for you and your people 
and I'll start with Wyatt and then we'll kind of go in reverse order. So Wyatt. I think a lot of it is just basically being involved and in whether that be through social media. I know there's a lot of platforms on social media that you can actively just follow and educate yourself. And I think that's a lot of it that comes back to is just educating yourself. Because I've been in many circumstances that people often ask me like, oh, you guys still exist. And, you know, like, oh, what is it like to live in teepees? You know, it's just that awareness that not many people have. And so it's just, I think that's most, the most important thing I can say to people is just to educate yourself um, in a way of like, not basically saying like you don't know anything, but just making sure you're up to date to the modern societies of what Native American is or what being indigenous is, especially on the reservation. And I think also just advocating for certain rights that many people have fought for on the reservations or being a native land in general, such like, you know, um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. So those are certain things that are public health issues and ultimately athletic training issues in large perspective. And I think that's something that I can say um, to everybody is just um, follow certain um, platforms, um, look up on the internet. YouTube is a great platform. Podcasting, there's many podcasts that have that um, natives speak to it. So Yes. Uh, Muriel. I would say that as a profession, if you see a student out there, a minority student, if they are, you know, if they're struggling, find somebody, find that resource for them so that they can reach out. Um, I, I know in my undergrad, um, I was in a group of minority students, but I still felt like I was, you know, uh, a small voice in a big world. Um, so I, I really appreciate, you know, being able to find all of these individuals and others, all the others that are in our Native American group. Um, we've had this uh, little group for about a month, two months now, and it's really changed my perspective on everything. And I really appreciate each and every one of them. Um, so I'm willing to be, you know, like a mentor, mentee to our upcoming athletic trainers, our youth, um, and push for education um, programs in our school systems here here on the reservation. Um, it's really important because, you know, there's a lot of times when you're on the reservation, you feel like there's no way out. There's, you know, there's nothing out there for you, but there's so much out there for you. I mean, you would be surprised how many Navajos are out there. Um, I don't think there's ever a place that I've gone that I haven't run into one Navajo. Um, we were really surprised when we met Marisha. We're like, wow, you're way over on the East, East Coast. <laughs> So, and I know, you know, natives that are uh, Navajos that are global. So I know we're all out there and just like we are phrased for indigenous people stays, you know, we're, we're still here and we're always going to be here. We're not going to go anywhere. Um, so, you know, if, if there's people out there, minority students out there that are just struggling um, in the profession, if they need someone, we're all here. Um, we're all here together. Um, and we want to make sure that our voice is heard for everybody. Marisha. I think the biggest thing is going to be being aware in education, like um, Wyatt had said. There are so many, so many advocacy groups out there that um, are looking for people to collaborate with, and we're looking for people to collaborate with in the athletic training profession. Some of the other advocacy groups that I can name off the top of my head are going to include Light Up Navajo, the Navajo Water Project, uh, Missing and Murdered Dine uh, Relatives, um, the the national group Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, there's all sorts of COVID-19 relief funds. Um, so if you're looking to, you know, collaborate with any of these groups, you know, look them up and, you know, try to connect because they want to collaborate and help improve the lives of the people on our reservations. Um, 
but also one of the other things that I wanted to say really quickly is that, you know, I think we all have a responsibility to understand where we, where everybody comes from, you know, and just as where you come from is important to you, where I come from is important to me. And one of the things that I wanted to point out really quick was that biculturalism is a real thing. I think there are many of us, I can say probably all the people on this call um, have mastered the ability to bounce back and forth between being a, being on the reservation and life on the reservation and being out in um, away from the reservation in, I guess, normal society. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think we've really mastered that gift. And so what we're looking for, for our group at least, is to really connect with other Native American athletic trainers that want to help us advocate for, you know, our reservations on, um, on, or in the country. And we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of objectives and a lot of goals right now for ourselves. We have our um, discussion group that meets every week to discuss, you know, issues that Native American athletic trainers are facing, maybe even strategies on how to improve things. Um, we try to stay up to date on, you know, all the happenings that are happening on all the reservations. Um, we're also looking to do some more grant work in um, community outreach projects and maybe even some newer projects that we are, you know, um, regarding health education and things might come up in the future. We very, we uh, started talking about that. And so we're just looking for people to connect with, but I don't think that, I think that um, education is going to be key. And while we as Native American athletic trainers wanna be the catalyst for the education on our reservations, it's not solely our responsibility. I really want to call out or call, not call out, but call on um, the students in our communities, the parents in our communities, the administrators in our communities, the tribal health offices, um, the school districts, um, tribal government offices. You know, we have a responsibility to educate ourselves um, of all the possible ways that we can improve the life of our people and to ensure that Native American um, students understand that their health and their safety is our priority. And so please reach out to us if you uh, want to collaborate. And Jasmine. I think it's going to go back to, you know, similarly what everybody else is saying is this concept of education um, and educating others on like our culture and letting people know what is going on um, with, you know, everything in the concepts of like our culture, what's going on in the Diné and the Hopi people, what's going on with COVID and looking up all of these different organizations that could potentially use your help. And, you know, that is it, that's extremely important because without education, without us, you know, advocating for Native Americans and the things that we're, we're facing, you know, it's going to be unheard. And I don't want our culture to be unheard. And it shouldn't just be up to Native Americans to educate other people. Um, this should be like kind of a national thing, you know, whether it's our allies, our students, and, you know, everybody within our social circles, um, you know, it's a responsibility to educate everybody on our people because we're still here and we're resilient and we're strong and we're not going anywhere, but you guys should learn about our culture because it is important. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, going back to this concept of missing, murdered Indigenous women, you know, we need to protect uh, protect and find our stolen sisters. There are over 5,712 cases of women who have not come home. That's devastating. Native American women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than any other race. That's a problem. 
Um, and I think, you know, we, we need to constantly educate each other and everyone else around us about, you know, issues that, you know, Native Americans face. All right. And in the show notes, somebody typed in the website. So I'll make sure I have that for the murdered and missing indigenous, indigenous women and children. So I'll make sure I post that with the link there as well. So Alyssa? Almost all of us know what it's like to be the only brown, you know, native person in a room, uh, especially in the realm of athletic training. Um, and um, like Marisha said, I we've really learned how to balance um, living in both worlds. Um, just because a lot of us, um, you know, are born and raised on the reservation and we have our um, certain um idiosyncrasies, um, even things like, um, I really, when I went to college, I had to learn how to look people in the eye. I had to learn how to, um, you know, um, um, if anything, I was always taught to be more assertive, but for me, that was always kind of counterproductive because we're always like, you listen first before you speak. Um, cause those are all cultural teachings for us. Um, in regards to educating yourself, um, you know, I, it's one thing that I think I've, I've experienced is that, um, there's this assumption that all Native tribes are the same. However, I think from the brief time you spend with us, you'll find out that we're we're similar in certain aspects, but we're also very different, and we're very proud of those, um, you know, those things that make us stand out. We're from different regions of the country. We have different. Um, we honor still. I think it still comes down to other, honoring our Mother Earth and things like that. But you know, with us, we have to learn how to balance traditional teachings and uh, Western uh, concepts of medicine. So if anything, I encourage our fellow athletic trainers is take time to come out and speak to us, take time to learn about our different tribes, our different, you know, struggles and our different triumphs, because there's a lot of um, pride in all of our tribes. There's a lot of things that we accomplished and a lot of, you know, um, bad, bad things that we all went through. Uh, like Jasmine said, the Trail of Tears, Navajo long walk. For us, we had the Pueblo Revolt, you know, against the Spanish conquistadors. Um, so there's a lot of pride within our Native communities. But I also um, challenge our fellow Native athletic trainers is to, to step outside of the shadow and take on leadership positions, seek out um, the state organizations and national organizations. And it's, you know, I've been practicing for quite a bit and it's only until recently that I started acting on a state level um, but it takes time so be um, patient uh, but like everyone said we're here we're around all right Muriel mentioned several times reaching out you know being a mentor you guys have a group so as a group is there one single best way to get a hold of or reach out or is it just individually so we do have a group um, on Instagram and in Facebook and then also our discussion. So on Instagram, it's native underscore ATs, ATS. And then on Facebook, it's native ATs um, all together. And then we do meet on Wednesdays um, from 12 to 1.30, Mountain Daylight Time. All Native American ATs are welcome there. Is this open to people like me, obviously not Native American, that, that just want to jump in, learn, sit, watch? Exactly, yes. Exactly. I guess like Muriel said, it goes both ways. So we want to educate people, but we also want to learn other practices as well. So it's open to anybody. Um, 
anybody that's indigenous or categorized indigenous American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, Native Americans, the whole realm of Native Americans, you are more than welcome to join um, via Facebook, anything like that, if you want to learn and collaborate. Fantastic. So again, on Instagram, check out Native underscore ATS or on Facebook, Native ATS. ATS, I'm sorry. So on Facebook, it's Native ATS. And then jump on one of the, the video calls with them Wednesdays at noon Mountain Daylight Time. And then you can educate, advocate, be part of the solution rather than assuming that all the tribes are the same and being part of continuing to, um, I guess, oppress the Native Americans. So again, it's just about advocacy, helping each other grow. Um, and then I'm looking for just an individual contact information. So uh, most of you have put it in here in the show notes, and I'll share that as well. But Muriel, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's going to be the single best way to do that? Uh, the best way would probably be through Gmail. Um, so it's uh, M K Sosi T S O S I E zero six at Gmail, um, and that would be probably the fastest way to get a hold of me. Fantastic, and Alyssa. Okay, you're gonna have to write this down very slowly. So my Gmail is um, so T U W A W I S N O M eighty five at Gmail. So the well is nim eighty five. Okay, so I have to double check with that. Double check that with you to make sure I got it right. But I, I did type it just slowly. You said that's that. my whole name. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I love it. All right, Wyatt, single best way to get a hold of you? Uh, same way, Gmail. Uh, email is the best way. Uh, it's W, my first name, w, the initial, and then White Goat, W-H-I-T-E-G-O-A-T-12 at gmail.com. All right, so so far we got Muriel, Alyssa, and Wyatt on email. On email. Jasmine, single best way? Single best way is probably going to be on Instagram. <laughs> um. J- Jazz Velasquez, J-A-S-V-E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z-A-T-C. Yep, there you go. All right, so hit her up on Instagram. And then Marisha. I'm on uh, email as well. So um, mine is M as in Mike, R-L-4-1 at students, that's plural, uh, dot U-W-F dot E-D-U. All right, so if you want to get a hold of any of the Native American ATs that have been on this call will have the contact information there. Their email, for the most part, except for Jasmine, is on Instagram. Or they should all be on the Native underscore ATS on Instagram or the Native ATS on Facebook. Join one of those groups. Check them out. Find, you know, figure out how you can advocate, how you can educate yourself. Um, maybe even go out and have an experience where you're just shadowing one of them for a day as they go through their tribal rotations. I don't know if that's acceptable, but in those calls or in that group, they can tell you whether that's okay. So for Jeremy, the sports medicine broadcast, all of my new athletic training friends here, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Native American. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Native American. So we got Jeremy, Muriel, Alyssa, Wyatt, Jasmine, Marisha, and John Seco in the Sports Medicine Broadcast. That is a wrap. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thank you. you, Jeremy. Thank you.